This is episode number 164, Animal Protein Causes Cancer, with T. Colin Campbell, Ph.D. Welcome to The Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, inspiring stories, and sports science to help you be better every day. Nutrition is really what controls cancer growth. As long as you're consuming the wrong kind of foods, the cancers are going to move forward. If you then switch to the other side, that's what we showed in our studies. The cancer disappears and you don't get rid of those genes, they still hang around. But at least the cancer is not growing. You're not feeding the genes. The whole concept of reversal is, I think, is really exciting because what that says is that eating the right food is not for the purpose of preventing future disease. It's not only for that purpose. But what really is exciting about this, and this is what we were able to do, we could use nutrition to actually reverse existing disease. Hope you guys are doing awesome with the holidays right around the corner. I actually really enjoy the holidays. And while some people find it really stressful, I love reconnecting with family members, I love having a change in scenery and routine, and I love that it just sort of benchmarks a time of the year where you can check back in and see what you've been up to and just evaluate where you are in your life. It's such a privilege to get to do this podcast, and thank you so much for being a part of my community and for listening and supporting this show. I sincerely appreciate it, and there wouldn't be this podcast without you. Big thank you to those of you who are supporting my work on Patreon, and that's patreon.com slash The Sonia Looney Show, where people are donating a couple bucks a month to the show. And if you want to make a one-time donation to help us cover our costs, you can do that via PayPal. Just go to sonialooney.com slash podcasts, and you'll see a PayPal button, or you can also see it in the show notes. And speaking of support, thank you to our podcast sponsor, Osea Malibu, for making this episode possible. People often comment on my skin and how my skin looks a lot younger than someone my age, 36. And I attribute that to two things, or maybe three things, my plant-based diet, exercising, and skincare products. And I don't have a crazy regime. I just like using a cleanser, sometimes a serum, and a moisturizer. And it's pretty simple. And anybody can do it. Men and women actually should be doing it. And I really like Osea Malibu because it's run by women. Each product is sustainably sourced. It's non-toxic, cruelty-free, and vegan. And it just makes your skin feel really fresh and awesome. Taking care of your skin is just one way to engage in self-care that makes you feel great. Check out their Ocean Cleanser. If that's the one thing you do every day, just wash your face. And they've offered a $10 off your first purchase of $50 using my name, Sonia Looney, all lowercase, at oseamalibu.com. Go onto their website, check out their mission, take their skincare quiz, and enjoy their products. And again, that's $10 off your first purchase of $50 using my name, Sonia Looney, at checkout at oseamalibu.com. So I kind of dropped a bomb with the title of today's podcast, and I'm really excited to introduce you to T. Colin Campbell because he has been dedicated to the science of human health for more than 60 years. That's right. He is 85 years old, and he is amazing. He's still working. He's still researching. He is still changing the world. Dr. Campbell grew up on a dairy farm and was the first in his family to go to college. 
He has his PhD and is MIT and Cornell trained and educated in nutrition, biochemistry, and toxicology. His primary focus is on the association between diet and disease, particularly cancer, and he has spent his entire career looking at these things. Although largely known for the China study, one of the most comprehensive studies of health and nutrition ever conducted, and recognized by the New York Times as the Grand Prix of Epidemiology, it has sold over 2 million copies worldwide. Their studies have shown that animal protein has a very strong effect on the growth of cancer. Milk protein in their experiments turns on cancer 100% of the time. If they took it away, they could reduce it down to zero. Dr. Campbell's profound impact also includes extensive involvement in education, public policy, and laboratory research. He is also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Whole and the Low-Carb Fraud. Several documentary films feature Dr. Campbell and his research, including Forks Over Knives, Eating You Alive, Food Matters, and Plant Pure Nation. He continues to share his evidence-based information on health and nutrition whenever given the opportunity. He has delivered hundreds of lectures around the world, and he is the founder of the T. Colin Campbell Center for Nutrition Studies and the online plant-based nutrition certificate in partnership with eCornell. And I personally just completed this certificate, and it's a six-week process, and there's so much amazing information. If you're interested in learning more about plant-based nutrition, and it's not only about nutrition, it's about policy, it's about the environment, there's a lot of different things that you're going to learn. I highly recommend going on to eCornell and looking for this plant-based nutrition certificate and getting that going. Dr. Campbell is really near and dear to me because he is probably the main reason that I changed my diet about six and a half years ago. I saw the documentary Forks Over Knives where he is featured, and one of my main fears in my life was getting cancer and feeling like I had no control over it. So after I saw some of his research presented in this documentary and then going and looking for more, he's done over 300 studies, I realized that I had a lot more control over my health than I thought, and that's when I decided to make the transition. We cover a lot in this episode. You're going to hear about his research in the Philippines, which is actually something different from the China study, and I highly recommend you pick up the book, The China Study. Why we need to stop taking the reductionist view of nutrition, how to overcome personal bias in science, and I think this was really important because he actually did his PhD dissertation on why you need animal protein, and he was able to see the results of the research he was doing in the Philippines and change his stance and viewpoint on it. And that's incredibly hard to do, especially whenever you did your dissertation on that. We talk about why whole foods plant-based is better than vegan, complications of groupthink and industry government interference. And it's really, really disheartening and crazy how much industry plays a role in recommendations that the government makes. We talk about how much animal protein is too much, the mechanism with animal protein that causes cancer, why most doctors don't know a lot about nutrition, and what does protein deficiency actually look like. You're going to learn so much in this podcast. Dr. Campbell has so much to say. I highly recommend that you check out his eCornell course and also listen to him. He's been on tons of podcasts. He's given so many speeches about this. If you want to hear about how and why animal protein causes cancer, this episode is definitely for you. And hey, approach it with an open mind. If this sounds like BS to you, I promise you that it isn't. And this is probably one of the most important things that you could ever listen to. So here he is, Dr. T. Colin Campbell. Dr. Campbell, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Well, good. Thank you. I'm uh, looking forward to the conversation. 
Yeah, I started this show about two and a half years ago, and you've been on my list of people because you are one of the main people that helped me change my diet like six years ago because of the Forks Over Knives documentary. Right. Okay. Thank you. So I'd love to talk about your background. It's really interesting that you grew up on a dairy farm and just your educational ebbs and flows to get to where you're at today have just been really cool. So can you talk about that? Yes, you're right. I grew up on a dairy farm in Virginia. I was the first in my family to go even go to college, to be honest about it, either on my mother's or father's side. My father only had a few years of elementary school education, so it was a big deal just going to school. And then, of course, I then went to graduate school eventually at Cornell, did my master's doctoral degree there. I completed that in 1961. That's a little while ago. After that, I eventually went to MIT. I was there for a couple of years as a postdoctoral, we call it, research associate. And then I took a, a faculty position at Virginia Tech in biochemistry and nutrition. And there, we had a major program with the State Department, U.S. State Department, in the Philippines that was intended to develop a model for feeding malnourished children that is typically found in poor countries. And so I spent 10 years, actually, being uh, the campus coordinator of that program and spent quite a lot of time in the Philippines. And uh, before I tell you what I did there, <laughs> if I can go back to my graduate school days, I did a doctoral dissertation, essentially, on promoting the consumption of more animal protein. <laughs> that was the big deal. The nutrition community in general really thought at the time, and they still do for the most part, that you start a good diet by eating lots of animal protein. So, as I say in my doctoral dissertation, I was involved in a research project to show, in fact, that's true. In any case, that was published. Then, uh, if I can now jump ahead where I was before, when I got to Virginia Tech on a faculty there, and I was in charge of this project in the Philippines designed to, you know, develop a model for female and children, the thought of the day in our community was making sure that these children in situations like that, they got enough protein. So here it was, uh, I'm coming from a farm milking cows if you will, in order for all I get to get that good protein. I'm doing my graduate work along the same lines. I get to the Philippines, and there we're promoting the consumption of protein again. But I saw something at the time that was a little puzzling. I got the impression that the few children getting the most protein, and there weren't many in the Philippines, quite frankly, but the few getting the most protein were, had a higher susceptibility to getting liver cancer, which was odd. And then about the same time, there was an animal study, experimental animal study in India that sort of supported that idea that the higher the consumption of protein, the greater is the risk for liver cancer. And that was another hat I was wearing, the whole question concerning, you know, what's cancer and so forth and so on. And we tend to assume in those days, and unfortunately today, almost everybody still assumes that it's wrong. You know, the cancer is caused by chemicals, you know, causing mutations. So I had a problem because on the one hand, we're trying to identify a protein source for these children. And on the other hand, I'm seeing this information that more protein might mean more cancer. So I came back to the States. I was, I was just going to the Philippines a few weeks at a time, but I came back and organized a research project funded by the National Institutes of Health, that's NIH, which is the major research institution. I got a grant to study this question. 
namely, does protein cause increases in cancer? And so that particular grant lasted for the next 27 years. I kept getting renewed because we were publishing all of that. It's in the scientific literature. We were getting high marks on it. And what I learned from that was really quite staggering. The increase in protein, in this case, it was animal protein. I didn't, wasn't concerned about whether it was animal or plant. But in any case, as we increased the consumption of protein, and it was milk protein, the main protein of cow's milk, as we increased that protein, we just turned on to cancer like in 100% of the time, essentially. If we decreased it or took it away, took the animal protein away, below the level it was needed, we could cut it off to zero. So this is really a staggering sort of observation in a sense. The protein had a very powerful effect on the growth of cancer. And we published, I said, lots of studies on that. It's well documented, but quite frankly, no one really wanted to hear that. I was also kind of surprised too, but you know, I follow the science myself. I try to stay away from personal bias or personal preferences. And so this is what the, the science was showing us. And at the same time, being that's true, we did it a number of times. I also wanted to know how does it work? That's also pretty typical in science. And so being a biochemist, that's what I did for some time. I had a number of graduate students who worked for me and got their PhDs. And we were looking for the so-called mechanism responsible for this effect. And every time we looked for one, we found one. That led to another rather spectacular sort of observation that nutrients don't necessarily work by just causing a single change, like a single mechanism and affect a single disease. They tend to work together. And that led to the concept of holism, from my point of view. And eventually, as the years passed, as, it, as I say, it's been many, many years, this whole idea has exploded you know, until I finally wrote a book, The China Study in 2005. And I didn't know at the time whether that book was going to be successful, but I wrote it. We did, and I wrote it with my son, who at the time was uh, a good writer. He was in theater from Cornell. So we wrote the book and uh, took our chances, and it turned out the book has exploded. It now holds a world record, as far as I'm aware, in the sense that there's been at least 48, in fact, I'm sure it's over 50 now, of foreign translations of the book. And so it's all over the world. I've given a lot of lectures on this, uh, at least 900,000 somewhere in that neighborhood, a lot to medical schools. And I took those original observations, fairly straightforward, fairly narrow, namely it was an experimental animal study of all things, and turning on cancer. If I, I should add this point here, if it's of interest, if I had have taken those results, and if they were only half as much as what we saw, or even a tenth as much as what we saw, and I went out to the business community and said, hey, I got something here. I'm not going to tell you what it is. I got something that can turn off cancer or change it, you know, up and down. I'm sure I could have probably got a, the billion dollars plus that's necessary to do research on that. But in this case, it was something pretty simple. It was just nutrition. And so it's been very controversial, if you say, this whole idea of turning cancer on and off just by adjusting the level of protein is pretty spectacular. It turns out what happens in the case of cancer also is true in heart disease. And the interesting thing about heart disease is some of that was known in 1909, long before some of the people now these days are talking about it. So 
this all has gotten me into really a lot of enthusiasm talking about the whole food plant-based diet, which I would argue is uh, fairly simply put. It's very, very complex. It's infinitely complex biology. We have to understand that. But as far as its use is concerned, it's pretty straightforward and simple. Namely, just eat uh, plant-based foods, vegetables, fruits, grains, even nuts, too, legumes, etc., and not worry about you know how much of one you have and how much of the other. All that those numbers kind of thing are kind of silly, but just eat those uh, those kinds of foods, and as much as possible, eat them in, in essentially in the whole food form. That means they can, they can be cooked, and you know they can be more almost anything, just as long as one's sticking to that. Number one and number two, avoiding foods that have animal protein in them, which obviously means animal food. And uh, then one final thing, I think. Uh, don't add back a lot of salt, sugar, and fat to whatever it is one's eating. And when it's done that way, the results are spectacular. So when that, as I say, that book came out, and I got all kinds of invitations, I've been speaking all over the world on this, it turns out that there's a lot of enthusiasm because it really works. And of course, in the more recent times, there's some other people now getting into this. They're not nutritionists, but they're talking about it. And doctors are getting interested too, which is kind of exciting. So there's in a sense, my story is there's a lot more to it than that, but it might give you enough background to start with. Yeah. And I mean, there's so much in there. And my first question is, you mentioned that you like to focus on the science and not let your personal bias get in the way, but that's actually really hard to do. And I think that even with people now, when they're trying to decipher like what is the healthiest diet for them, our biases get in the way all the time because of other things that conflict that we've read that maybe we're not sure what's true or this is the way that the world as they know it works. So you said that you did your dissertation on consuming animal protein and you have done a lot of research in that area. So how were you able to overcome that personal bias? <laughs> That's, that is a, the $64,000 question, actually. I, I mean, I... I like science. I really respect science tremendously. For me, a synonym for the word science is integrity. In other words, science as originally devised, the philosophical construction of the concept of science, is basically staying true to the facts, which means, you know, being careful not to let biases get in the way. Uh, I got those results. And, uh, of course, they were against what I had originally thought. But the facts to me matter more than what I happen to be thinking. And I just kept at it. And the key about all of that is that we did that research and continued doing it in various and sundry ways. It was judged to be high quality because I was able to renew that grant every three years, eight times over the years. And it's very competitive to get that kind of funding. It was only a 16% chance of getting it renewed. And I, I did it eight straight times. So it gave me satisfaction that as far as the science was concerned, it was, you know, not to be challenged in a sense. Secondly, when I was publishing it, I published it in the very best journals. And uh, again, I get really high marks. We got high marks on, on the quality of the research. So with that in mind, when you say this kind of thing, you can't turn, I can't turn away from it. I, I don't care what. Some stuff started coming my way, if you will. It was uh, a time people wanted to throw me out of the university or discontinue my association with my professional society, even though I was elected to be the president at the time. 
And so I really, I understand what it's like to be living in, the, in a dark place in a sense. But at the same time, the facts are there. And I know that when the story is told in as, to as foolish as that, it does more than all the pills and procedures combined. We're actually a medical society. We're a society that relies on pills and procedures. That's what it comes down to. And I've written another book, just now going to be coming out soon, telling my story and telling you know, some of these issues. Why the pushback? Why is not nutrition taught in medical schools? I'm sure I know the answer to that. Not a single medical school in the country teaches nutrition. It's really unfortunate. I should add a comment, a side comment on that. There's a lot of MDs that have gotten in and uh, want to talk about this. Not a lot, but some. And, and there's uh, some of them are well-meaning and honorable felt people, but there's some of them that are, in my view, scams. <laughs> they, they've never had any training in nutrition. And so they go off talking about this diet in various ways. It's quite frankly, more problems than solutions. And so in my estimation, there's only one kind of diet that people want to really be healthy. There's only one kind of diet, and that's eating the whole plant-based foods. We're getting as close to it as possible. Uh, and of course, uh, it's challenging. I, I know it's challenging. We have to change our diet, and we have... My wife and I have been married for 57 years. She went along with us and really kept things in order for our eating. And our grown children, they're five. They're all into this, too. And they're the spouses and our 11 grandchildren. We're 100% plant-based, essentially, because it works. I'm 85. You may know that or not know it. And I don't use any drugs. We don't, none of us use drugs. Nutritional effect is so incredibly powerful if they do it this way if they do it this way vegan diets don't work really very well because that concept is it has a good foundation a good concept and i understand that you know to try to reduce you know animal maintain what animal welfare which is fine that's great but if that's the only message people tend not to do the right thing they won't eat animal food yes but what they do is they substitute a lot of um, convenience and processed foods. They get some advantage. They can get some advantage for sure, and it's significant, but they don't get the full advantage of being able to actually cure disease and, and all of that. 90% of vegetarians are still using dairy, and that's a problem. So coming back to your question, I would argue that if we really want to know something as complex as this, and really know what really is the best solution, We've got to turn to science. And unfortunately, none of the people, almost none, in fact, I don't know of a single person who's actually out lecturing on this or writing books about it. I don't know a single person who's ever done experimental research in nutrition. And certainly they have not published in professional literature. Some are quite good in telling the story and they've seen parts of it. But the science itself is what makes the difference. And I don't know how else to put it. <laughs> I spent about 20 years in national policy development, you know, being on expert committees on diet and cancer, for example, and those kind of committees. And, you know, actually testifying before congressional committees, both in the Senate and the House, you know, being on television quite a bit in earlier years. And I, so I've seen this information, how it plays out in the national arena, especially at the political level. And so the new book, that's what I'm talking about in the new book, 
having been as much involved in the political affairs and senior positions in, in science, I'm telling a story that hasn't been told before, I guess. And I'm very excited about it because I, I think if people, and I, I hope, given lots of lectures and gotten quite a lot of practice of this, I try to tell it in a way in which the average person, not in science, can understand and see it and say, wow, this really does work. And, you know, not just for cancer, but for heart disease, diabetes as an easy one, especially type 2, and even a number of autoimmune diseases. Uh, you probably know a lot of this, I, I think. Well, um, it's good for the audience to hear, though. Yeah, I am passionate about this. I think that, uh, oh, incidentally, in this book, I should tell you this much, too. I've really been troubled by the fact that it's been difficult to sell this message, quite frankly, especially to authorities, yeah. especially to the medical community and that sort of thing. It's difficult. It's difficult to sell the idea even to one's spouses, in a lot of cases, or family and friends. And so I've been concerned about that for some time. And I believe it has a lot of that has to do with the fact that the public has not been told the truth about this. And nutrition as a science is terribly confusing. So for the non-scientist, they're hearing all these stories, this, that, and everything else. And I mean, how can they believe anything really sometimes? Not to mention the lobby groups and all the, the big industry behind some of the Absolutely. conflicting information. I, yeah, I've seen that in spades. <laughs> <laughs> so there you have it. So when this happened, gosh, back in the 80s, actually, when I was really becoming concerned about this, the vicious attacks against ideas of this sort. And so I spent a year at the University of Oxford in England in 1985 and 86. I was working with my friends there on, on our upcoming China project that you, you probably know about. But in any case, in the, I was being bamboozled, I guess you could say, just quite viciously. And so I decided to go into the literature to see from history if there was anything I might learn to explain you know, why, why we've all been you know, co-opted and, and thinking the wrong thing. And it was, it was the most enjoyable thing I think ever did. I went back into the literature to the 1700s, you know, old books and that sort of thing, to see, you know, where did nutrition as a concept really arise? How was it explained? And you know, number one and number two, how did cancer come into view? How was that explained as well? And I learned some things that just blows my mind in a sense. And I think I really have a good story to tell the public and everyday people. Here's why you haven't heard this before. And here's the information. Once you see this, there's no denying it. And so I think that could be a, a big factor. And I take that message, incidentally, to the national level when I can, especially once thinking of the dietary guidelines which is nothing more than a program run by industry in the form of a government cloak. But at the government level, we have people at that level, institutions, I should say. I don't like to pick on individual people because they don't really know most of the time, but institutions are almost programmed to maintain whatever it is they believe. And so when people come for an institution, whether that's a government agency or whether it's a, it's a company or a big industry out in the private sector, or whether it's just individuals who are sympathetic to those points of view. When we become parts of institutions, then it gives rise to a concept I call groupthink. That's not new, not, I didn't invent that word, but that idea of groupthink has been around for a while. And there's some serious you know, discussion in science about it. And it has to do with the fact that when you get in an institution, 
however amorphous it may be, you're an institution. You better think like what the institution does or you lose your job. It's that simple. And so that's been a very powerful force ever since the late 1800s. You know, as professional societies began to form, as industries started to take up the charge, and eventually as the government itself started, you know, publishing dietary guidelines and stuff like that, they're all operating in a sense on the same basic and fundamental sort of belief, which I call a myth. Uh, the belief being that animal protein is a is a important part of our diet. It's not. If we can stay away from it, we're going to see a lot of benefit. So it's a big story. You're you're asking the obvious question. It's hard to give a straight answer without giving a little bit of background for this. But I just find this whole story now to be just so incredibly powerful. I can't give names and stuff like that. I don't want to go too far on the limb, but there already has been a film that's been uh, descriptors almost already been written a, a film of my life actually by Academy Award type people. And I'm anxious to tell that story. So if that goes forward and it comes out, that'll be quite an effort too. But I just want to almost, if you, if you will, shake up the world, <laughs> you know, with this idea, because if we're eating, we just eat the wrong food. That in turn leads to some really serious, has some serious consequences. It's complex. I don't, I don't want to, you know, simplify this too much. But two of the biggest problems of all that we face these days because of eating the wrong food is number one, the environment. That's the biggest story of all, in my view. We eat the wrong food, and we out now, have, now have a lot of documentation, and I've been involved in some of, some of that with the World Bank and UN. We know what really is the chief cause of, of climate change. It's eating livestock, pure and simple. It causes a whole variety of different problems. So that's one issue that we have to face. We have no choice. It's that simple. The second really big problem is cost of health care. The cost of health care is the highest in the United States and any other country in the world per capita. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that we, as citizens, we have a government that takes our taxes and helps to subsidize the industry that produces the wrong food. So we get sick. We have more sickness. And so that happens. And then when we get more sickness, then we become, we have a larger number of customers for the drug industry. So we've got two major, major forces in our society that we don't really pay much attention to sometimes. One is the food industry that produces the wrong food and is heavily supplemented with our tax dollars. And the other is the health industry that largely depends on the use of drugs. And that's why something like 93 or 95% of the people my age regularly use drugs in one sort or another. And so... I'm glad you're young and you are taking this charge on because it's your generation that really, I think, can cause change. But knowing what the facts are is always helpful. And uh, understanding you know, how to convey those facts is obviously also very helpful. Yeah, I mean, I think the people will read the information, but then the, they'll fight back against it because of bias or because they're confused. But really, like, you just have to try it and see how it goes. That's the best way yeah. to guarantee that you're going to be making the, the best choices for yourself. I want to kind of go into the mechanisms of how animal protein causes cancer. I know people are probably wondering, well, what is it about animal protein that causes cancer? And how much protein from animals is too much protein? And where do I, 
where should I get my protein if I'm not getting it from animals? Good questions. Great questions. Well, the first thing, any amount of animal protein is going to increase risk for some of these serious diseases. Any animal protein. So the best answer to that, don't eat any. Now, obviously, we know, if you look at the statistics, especially care parent population, if you look at the statistics, there are people who can consume quite a lot of animal food and apparently get away with it and don't really have any particular problems. But the way to look at that question, though, too, is to, as they say in, in theory, to look at one's life and ask questions like, what was their life expectancy? Some bunch of people get cancer. Uh, another bunch get heart disease. Some others get diabetes. And a lot of people kind of live with these problems as if they're almost, you know, something, it's just an aging problem, maybe, or it's just common or it's genetics or something like that. And so when you look at it from that perspective, and then you look at the correlation between, and this has actually been done, a number of studies. So you look at the correlation comparing different societies in respect to the relationship with animal protein, for example, versus heart disease or versus of cancers or versus osteoporosis and so forth and so on. You see a linear regression. It's amazing. It's really, and it's not published that way usually. It's published under some other name because people don't like to talk about the problems of animal protein. So in any case, that, that regression lines from right down to the XY origin, you know, that's zero. So what it really says is that as soon as we start putting in animal food in our diet, we can expect to see some increase in risk. And so that's just the way it works. And, and when I say increase in risk, I'm talking about risk from various and sundry different kinds of diseases, but especially the big ones like cancer and heart disease. That's, that's one thing to keep in mind. On mechanisms that you just asked about, that was one of the questions that we did in our research, did exhaustively, as I mentioned before, because when you when you see animal protein turning on cancer, that's so spectacular. I mean, you either have to walk away from it, say, I'm going to ignore it, or believe it. And by studying the mechanisms, we kept finding, every time we looked for one, we found one. And I can mention some that we did, to be specific. Cancer starts, let's say, with a chemical that causes a mutation. And uh, so that chemical, when it's ingested, has to be metabolized by an enzyme that activates it, for the most part. And that's really what leads to the binding to DNA and, and then subsequently to the mutation event. So cancer starts with the mutation. And that sense is genetic, in, in that if one wants to consider it that way. So what we did in, this, in the study was to look at the various degenerative kinds of reactions that participate in that process. Like, for example, what is the effect of animal protein on the enzyme that activates the carcinogen? Well, it turns out as you increase the animal protein, the enzyme activity just goes right up within hours. And so it increases the rate in which the carcinogen is converted to its active form. That enzyme confirmation for biochemists who might be listening to this, the confirmation of the enzyme itself changes. again in a way that actually increases the activity of the enzyme to be able to catalyze more, you know, a higher production of that reactive metabolite. And then it also affects, too, the amount of the carcinogen that's bound to DNA. Well, it turns out, and, and, then, and then you bind to DNA, and that eventually leads to a mutation, but once the chemical binds to DNA, our body has an enormous capacity to repair that. 
And I don't know what the number is, but let's let's say it's probably something like 99.9% of that sort of stuff that goes on in our body uh, gets repaired. And so that's the way nature works. It's just repairing this sort of thing. However, if, let's say, a DNA-bound chemical, if if it's sitting there not yet repaired and the cell divides, then what happens? The cell incorporates that change, that DNA structure, into the subsequent uh, daughter cell. Now you got a gene change. And so that's a genetic change, and that's sort of the beginning of cancer, if you will. If you will. It turns out the high-protein diet actually uh, not only increases the enzyme to form more of the product that actually binds to DNA, it also compromises this beautiful system we have for repairing it. So the high-protein diet is, is uh, sort of minimizing or decreasing our bodies to be able to deal with its own problems. I mean, that's pretty amazing. And so then when the new cell formed, let's say a daughter cell forms on occasion, one chance in whatever it is, change. a whole bunch of genetic changes obviously participating in this. But in any case, at that point in time when you have the new cells, cancer cells, if you will, they're now programmed to get cancer. All they need to do is be fertilized. It's like seed in the ground. So if we feed more animal protein, that causes those infant cancer cells to start to grow and multiply and divide. And that too, there's a number of steps in there that we were able to demonstrate that are switched or changed by animal protein. And so what happened after you know seeing 10 or 12 of these kind of mechanisms we looked at, and to see them all change in the same direction, that opened up our eyes and opened up my eyes to a whole new concept of what nutrition really is. Nutrition, as I mentioned before, a single nutrient has multiple mechanisms that operates that way, but then you can just imagine if you have a, a zillion nutrients all working together, all doing you know, plus and minus kind of things. It's an amazing sight to see. And so I know what I've just explained here is for, especially over where I have a blackboard in front of me or, or, or a computer screen or something, that change that occurs that's so it's, it's dramatic and it can happen quite quickly. And there's a whole lot of nutrients that participate in one way or another. But an animal protein itself, that nutrient does it best. But when we consume animal foods to get that animal protein, we're changing a lot of other things at the same time. We tend to change, we tend to decrease our consumption of plant foods. A lot of plant foods, I mean, plant foods has good stuff in it, and it kind of represses that. So we got a sort of a war between animal nutrients on the one hand, plant nutrients on the other. And so the animal protein, especially, and other nutrients associated with that, all those nutrient changes tend to encourage the production of disease, like heart disease, cancer, and so forth. So there's lots of mechanisms. It, it becomes, in, in some ways, it's uh, infinitely complex because all that stuff is kind of working together. But on the other hand, if we want to keep it simple, all we need to look at is the end result. When you look at the end result, that's what we saw. You decrease the protein down to you know something less. That, and we need protein, by the way. Plants have all the protein we need. Any kind of plant diet has all the protein we need. We do not need to eat animal foods to get the protein. And so the numbers that we attach to these things, like you need 80 grams a day or 100 or whatever, the recommendations like to say, I, just, I don't put much stock in those numbers because they're easily manipulable. And so I think the best way is for the average person who just wants to eat good food and be healthy just eat whole plant-based foods. 
the body will take care of itself. That's nature. And that's another part of the story that I've gotten really enthused about, is that one of the best expressions I know in nature, insofar as biology is concerned, is the effect of nutrition. Because nutrition is a is a, just an incredible effect. It's a holist, I call it. Lots of nutrients, infinite nutrients working together to create a response. And it affects more than one response. It affects a whole bunch. And so we can consider life fairly simple if we like. We don't need to get involved in all that, those details that are, you know, we, that we play around with those numbers and those molecular identities and stuff that we do in science. And so the public has remained confused. But admittedly, and understandably so, I would be confused too if you didn't have access to really looking at the basic science in a way that we've been able to do. So that's somewhat of an answer for the mechanism question you just asked. Yeah, and I think just to reiterate, like cancer can start in the body from genetics or chemical carcinogens, but really like eating animal protein is what's dumping gasoline on the fire to help those precancerous cells proliferate and grow. And on the flip side, how about reversing cancer by not eating animal product? Because all of us have some form of some precancerous cell growing in our bodies at any given moment, right? Correct. You know this quite well. I'm impressed (laughs) uh, the way you describe it. But yes, reversal, that is a really exciting concept. As I say, nutrition is really what controls cancer growth. As long as you're consuming the wrong kind of foods, the cancers are going to move forward. They're going to get enlarged and so forth and so on. If you then switch to the other side, that's what we showed in our studies. The cancer disappears. It goes, and you don't get rid of those genes. They still hang around. But at least the cancer is not growing. You're not feeding the, the genes, if you will. And so the whole concept of reversal, is, I think, is really exciting because what that says is that eating the right food is not for the purpose of preventing future disease, you know, preventive medicine, if you will. It's not only for that purpose. That idea, that argument, is, although true, it doesn't sell very well because people don't, aren't concerned too much about what they're going to get 20, 30, 40 years down the road, especially young people. But what really is exciting about this, and this is what we were able to do, we could use nutrition to actually reverse existing disease. And my good friend, Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn, and working with heart disease patients, and Dr. Ornish, Dr. McDougall, who, you know, they were doing some of this without, you know, coming the nutrition route that I took. But they were actually showing you could take people with disease. And these people would tend to get better. I mean, that's introducing the concept that nutrition is a means of treatment. We don't need to rely on drugs just for treating disease. That's crazy. That's what we do. We can now start thinking about using the right kind of nutrition to actually treat disease. And it'll, have much more, it'll happen much more rapidly and much more comprehensively, as I said before, than all the drugs and procedures combined. So the, unset, the concept of getting away from pre, uh, preventive medicine, I don't want to say get away from it, but that's a very weak kind of argument. I think the, the really message that people might, might like to hear is, look, if I change my diet, I will see improvement in my health. It's that simple. That's the big story. And it can happen really quite quickly, within days, certainly within weeks and months. And to me, that is probably 
the main message for the future, for people to know. They can actually get better from their various and sundry illnesses. Almost at any stage, I don't know really whether this would work at 100% of the time for 100% of the people with advanced cancer. That's probably not true because you can get to a point where, you know, you've kind of got, it might be hard to, for the body to be able to reverse, reverse itself. I should tell you, incidentally, on that question concerning disease reversal or even treatment with cancer patients, that was proposed. There was a guy, a physician back in 1810, 1805, 1810, a fairly prominent young physician at the time who was working with cancer patients. And he worked in a famous hospital in London. And he wanted to use, as he called it, the vegetable diet. I want to use the vegetable diet to treat my cancer patients. He was turned down. And he went back and they turned him down again. They just didn't want him to do it. And this is even before protein had been discovered. I mean, that's all he knew. He knew that much. And the reason he knew that much is because when he was about 18, so the story goes, he has some illnesses of his own. I'm not sure what they were. But he switched his diet to a vegetable diet and saw this vast improvement. So then he got into medicine. He's a doctor. And so he started treating his cancer patients with this, uh, essentially, a plant-based diet, a vegetable diet. And so all the years since, anybody who wants to even imagine doing that kind of study, it's been denied until now. And even now, it's been tried on a, you know, kind of a show me the results, and then we'll go to the next stage kind of thing. That's my son, Tom, and his wife, Aaron. They're both MDs. Tom is, he co-authored the, the book with me. Eventually went on, and instead of acting, he was an actor. But he, instead of pursuing that, he decided to go to med school. So he went to med school, and so he met his wife, and one thing led to another. They got their degrees, they did a residency, and then Tom was hired by the, one of the big hospital medical systems in the country. And now he's uh, got a research project underway to test the effect of this diet as such. Not on single nutrients, that, that doesn't work, but just test the whole diet on people with, in his case, one study he has underway right now is one with metastatic breast cancer. That's probably one of the more serious of all of them. That these are women who had breast cancer and came back. And in a sense, it's sort of spreading, if you will. And uh, so he's got, I don't know, I think he's about 15 uh, women in that trial so far. We're going to see what happens. He's uh, limited in some things, what he's able to do, because everybody else is skeptical about it. But he's, he's doing it. And uh, I'm kind of excited for it, taking the first step on how to do that. And to go back to your question, I would like to know. I mean, for me, the research and theory suggests this is true, but we don't know. We need proof. Uh, I'd like to know if people with uh, cancer, already diagnosed with cancer, and maybe even a fairly advanced stage, I want to know the extent to which they just changed their diet totally, if that would cause a reversal. I mean, all, all the evidence I have says yes, there's a really good chance that's going to work, just like it does in heart disease. But it has to be done the right way. And uh, the formula for reversing heart disease is the same as the formula for reversing, I would suggest, cancer and uh, diabetes and some others. So there's a lot right now happening, begin to happen. We'll see. I mean, some of us have to wait for this, do more research. But we certainly have enough information to make changes now. And uh, my, my take on that is that Two things. First of all, the public tend not to know this information very well. That's understandable. And one of the reasons they don't really understand it very well, because first off, doctors aren't trained in nutrition, so they don't understand it. 
they think of uh, nutrition on the basis of a single nutrient kind of effect instead of thinking of it the other way around. So physicians are all good and well-meaning people. Went to school, they want to work with people. They're not given the information that really works. And on top of it, if they, some memoir, they're beginning to switch and it's all very exciting and they're starting to treat their patients this way. But the problem is they're not being reimbursed properly. It's hard for a physician to get adequate reimbursement for services if they're just going to tell people to eat broccoli. Yeah, they get reimbursed for prescribing drugs. <laughs> That's right. That's what they get reimbursed for. So we got a big challenge in front of us as a society. And so physicians aren't able to tell their patients. That's one reason why the public tend not to know. The second reason is the fact that the government, and this is where I come in, too. I've been very much involved in much of this, especially in early years. The government has certain bodies that determine what the dietary guidelines should be, or another program determines how much of the nutrients we should consume, or another programs or programs, I should say, determining how to use drugs, and that's, 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 et cetera. And all of those programs are tainted, in some, some cases seriously tainted, with information that is wrong. It's just simply wrong. And it's easy to show. And what happens, too, is that the government comes out with their edicts, which actually, unfortunately, they represent the corporate point of view. That's how the government works, as you probably know. We have the best government that money can buy. And that's why like my friend first said that, to me at least. So we have a government where the politicians are beholden to the people who paid for them to get elected. And the people who, pay, people who primarily paid for their election are people who they want to maintain the status quo. They want to maintain the businesses. Even though they may kill people and they create very sick people, you know, that elections counts. And so I say it's time for the government to to, uh, I wanna, I'm going to be pretty vigorous as I can be in this, really going public and basically saying for the government, get out of the way. I want them to start realizing, even that many of them may be good people, that they're trapped in a way of thinking that's not right. Uh, it may make money, it may make a lot of money, but I don't see the point of making a lot of money on making people sick. To me, that doesn't register. And we've just got to tackle that question, that problem. And try to you know work on ideas of you know how to uh, make it possible for one thing for people to have jobs, you know doing the right thing instead of depending on jobs to do the wrong thing. And so this becomes a very political, in my view, a very political discussion, very quickly. And uh, I would say probably the discussion concerning medicine and health and personal health. It's probably one of the best examples of actually seeing what's wrong with our present government. I mean, that's, that's pretty key. People like to be healthy, and the last time I checked. And I think they also now are learning about the environment. And if we don't change things around, forget it. It's, uh, I won't be around to see the disaster, but that's where we're headed. If we don't get our heads, you know, really understanding why we do the things we do. So it's a, a very political thing. I want to participate as much as I can on that question, especially for the upcoming elections if I can, because I, I, I've i always been interested in political affairs and I'd like to see responsible government. But now with so many of the candidates, uh, you know, vying for attention, if you will, and many of them are very good. They're, they're all good. As far as I'm concerned, most of them are really very good people, except for 
one character that's in the government now, but they must assume that they're really good people. They want to do the right thing, but they're kind of entrapped in making discussions that are kind of superficial and don't really mean a lot to the long term. And so I'm kind of hoping that politically we as a society can wrap our heads around that idea and sort of start sorting out the kind of programs that could work that, you know, get people out of the business of creating disease and into the business of creating health. That's a very important step we've got to take. So just to wrap up uh, our time here, I want to ask, because people always will come to me and they say, well, I've changed my diet, but I just still don't think I'm getting enough protein. And we haven't, we didn't even have time to go over the China study, but when you were working in the Philippines, you actually were working with people who were truly protein deficient. So like, what does protein deficiency actually look like? And what are the symptoms of that? Because I, I think a lot of people think that they're protein deficient, but it's just paranoia and they're not. You're absolutely, that's true, the way you said it. It's a mythology to think that we're going to be protein deficient. Yes, when I was in the Philippines and working with uh, some of these children, and that's a site I'll never forget. These children can be very emaciated, you know, near death, and certainly not growing to, to know that. And so it had been said at that time, and unfortunately still today, that much of that was due to the fact that we weren't getting enough protein. Well, that course, could scare the bejeebies out of people here in the West. I don't want my kids, you know, to die, not get enough protein, if you will. And so that story has been around quite a long time. You've got to have enough protein to get good growth and be healthy, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that's where my career trajectory just really went to. You know, I couldn't find, I, maybe I found, I got a picture of one or two children who were so-called protein deficient. If a specific protein deficiency is called kwashiorkor. And that's when the child maybe has a kind of pot belly and reddish hair and that's some of the symptoms of that sort of thing. It's not a protein deficiency why these children are not getting enough food. It's actually, for the most part, it's a lack of having food at all. You know, they just can't get enough food. They're really in, a, in almost a starving condition in some cases. Or they're getting food like rice gruel. Right? So it's just rice gruel, uh, maybe with a little flavor in coffee coffee grounds or something of that sort. I mean, really hideous. That's not going to sustain them on the one hand, but that's the extreme case. Here in this country, people want to know, we don't really have that problem. People want to know, you know, how much protein to get, where to get it from, like you said. And my answer to all of that, especially coming from that community, I was in that community, forget about it. Just forget about it, because most people think that protein only comes from animal food. That's not true. Plants have all the protein we need. In fact, they have ideal levels and the right kind of protein that we should be consuming. We do not need to eat animal food to get any protein. Just eat the plants. And so the whole mythology and euphoria that seems to be around people who tend to want to think, euphoria is not the right word, but the, but the difficulty that people fear if they don't get enough protein, that's, that's simply not correct. It's wrong. and I say I can't say it more, more simply. I think they do not need to eat animal food to get protein. They need to use dairy or eggs or meat. Forget it. It's not not necessary. And uh, and then if they go over to this whole food plant based diet, for some people it's a little challenge. Obviously, they can't change right away. They want they want to give up their own taste. But what's really interesting, and of course I did it myself, our family and many others, if we do this, 
it will take sometimes a month or two, or perhaps you know, a little longer, something like that, before our taste preferences change. And when when you get to that stage, especially not using a lot of added oil and added fat, but when when there are addictions, when we get to that stage of just eating plant-based foods, then you say, wow, this really tastes and then you just wonder, you look back what you did before and you say, how in the world did I eat that stuff? So our bodies are able to change and actually put us in a position that we really enjoy the food. I mean, I, I thought I myself, I, you know, I'd never get that stage, but it worked out that way. And uh, it's, uh, it's very good. Awesome. Well, I know we could go on for hours more because we're both really passionate about this, but for people listening, You've written multiple books, and also you you founded the Center for Nutritional Studies at Cornell, right? Yeah. Yeah, so like... Well, my, my students had a lot to do with it, but anyhow, go ahead. Yeah, I'm currently in one of the course in the entire module for that. Like, there's three modules. It's a six-week course. I've been taking it. It's really awesome. Even if you think that you... Like, if people listening are like, well, I've, I know everything there is to know about plant-based nutrition... I can personally say like I've spent six years studying and I'm still learning lots of new things in this course. So if people want more of this, they should definitely take the course. They should read your books. And where else can people find you? Well, I give lectures still. I'm kind of leaving that up for the staff at the center to screen that. I mean, they can write to me and maybe find out. But the best thing to do is to write to the Center for Nutrition Studies. It's called nutritionstudies.org. As you know, they're right there and, uh, and uh, say that they would like to have me do this or that or something else. And uh, I'm allowing them to screen it because I get far more <laughs> emails and invitations than I can handle. Yeah, you're the guy. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, it's just there's too many. I, I have to cut down some. I can't, I, I don't really want to travel across the world, which I've done dozens of times to do this. But so. I give talks, and I say it's probably one of the best ways. Read the stuff I do. Maybe listen to podcasts like this. I wish I, I could have the time and resources and that sort of thing to tell the, what I want to tell because I, I'm just so keen on people knowing this. I, I'm, I don't want to do it for any money myself. I'm not obviously wealthy for sure. I, I don't care about that. I, all I care about is just the information getting out there because I don't like to see a lot of sick people suffering. That. I can't take that. No one else really can, I think. And uh, when we have a solution to it, I'm very passionate about getting it out there. So especially yeah, with children. And the fact that like, I've had Dr. Esselstyn on the show as well. Like you guys are both in your 80s and you're still just like killing it and doing so much work and just still making changes in the world. And you're both eating the same way. You have your health, you have your energy, like this is what your 80s should look like. And I just think it's such a great example for the rest of us. So thank you so much for everything that you've done for your entire life's work so far, for taking the time to be on this show and really, really changing the world. It's been an honor to talk to you. Thank you so much for the invitation. I look forward to hearing more from you. That'll be great. It was so cool to get to do this interview and I admit that I was a little bit nervous because he's somebody that I really really respect and look up to and he's also an incredible academic so it was such a huge compliment to me whenever he told me that I knew my stuff. I recorded this and it just really made my day whenever he said that and man you guys should definitely pick up the book The China Study or get his book Whole. 
go to eCornell Center for Nutritional Studies. There's just so much to learn and it changes your life in such a massive and profound way. And to be able to control diseases or things that you think are only because of genetics is so empowering in your life. Eating a whole foods plant-based diet is easy. Go to plantpoweredtribe.com, check out my new website. There's so many different resources that I can give to you and other people who are doing so many amazing things to help people be healthier and simply prevent diseases and also protect the environment. Thanks again to our podcast sponsor, Osea Malibu, for supporting us on the show here. And thanks to those of you who have left reviews and have subscribed to the show. It really helps people learn about the show and helps get it out there. Hope you guys have a great weekend. Wishing you all the best success in your training adventures. And we'll see you back here next week.